Hey, podcast listeners, although not exactly sexually explicit, this episode does involve a lot of discussion of the genitals of mythical raccoon dogs. He switched on the light, which was illuminating his garden. And in this garden, I saw 20 raccoons sitting in the center of the garden. And one of these 20 was my radio-colored male. You are listening to And Would you put a scrotum grinder song on this podcast? Yeah, the um, friend Michelle's song for them. Okay. Let's see if I can find them real quick. Well, while Tony's looking up scrotum grinder... Um, I'll do the intro stuff. Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. Um, this is one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown, with other co-host... Tony Crowsdale. And guest host... Christian Arnold. And we're going to talk about our urban mesofauna neighbors. That's right. That's cute, small, little furry animals that run around your streets and backyards. Not as small as squirrels, but, but not as big as coyotes and stuff. Well, although coyotes are sort of knocking on the door. 35 pounds, yeah. Yeah. So, like, the things that are, like, as big as your cat or your small dog or medium-sized dog. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, up to maybe pit bull size. How would you categorize this? Probably, I'd say probably power violence is the the genre most associated. We probably call it power violence. Maybe grindcore, maybe just fast hardcore, but probably power violence. I love that there's these names. Every time I hang out with you, there's a new genre I've never even heard of. Had you heard of power violence before? I have not. No. And you're into like I mean grindcore and hardcore. Yeah. Yeah. Man is the bastard power invented violence, power yeah. violence. Okay. What distinguishes that from other kinds of hardcore? If you're like. Power violence. Oh, this is power violence. Power violence is, is known for kind of having like swings in tempo. They always they go real fast, and then they kind of go like, and like you know, okay. They kind of like have the the and usually in power violence. I don't know if the bass is usually turned up pretty high in the mix. Okay, so there you go. There you go. Yeah, and they're usually political, but like a little bit more like angsty political, but still very political. It's still very like. Like, they're angry at the right stuff and they're righteous, but, like, they might personalize it a little bit, you know? Okay. Like, not just, like, a list of, like... I mean, it's definitely punk bands that just basically, like, read a manifesto about a certain issue. Mm. They'll, they'll basically be, like... It's kind of, like, how I feel living in this system. You okay. know? Okay. You know, sensitive guys. So if you're feeling grumpy about the political system or other things getting you down mm. and channeling that through power violence music... Um, check out our podcast uh, share it with your friends we encourage you to tell your friends about the podcast if you like it go on to your podcasting platform of choice and rate us so other people can find us and love us just like you do um, and get in touch with us to, to tell us what you think of the podcast or give us some ideas at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com um, twitter handle herbwildlifecast and hit us up on facebook um, and so this episode came about because last year when we were doing a podcast episode, we were talking about crazy topics and urban wildlife. And Tony said, well, what about the Nazi raccoons? 
And we all said, what the hell are you talking about? Um, and Tony talked about how um, that, that the, the, the idea of it was that the Nazis in some central way had decided to introduce raccoons into Germany to improve the fauna. Um, but the reality was a little bit more nuanced than that. We're going to get into it. Um, and that got me thinking about raccoons as a general topic. Raccoons both where they're native. Um, and so we're going to hear about some research into uh, intelligence is like the easy word for it, but more precisely sort of performance on different cognitive tests yeah. between urban raccoons versus rural raccoons. And we're going to hear a little bit about the expansion of raccoons into Germany, including into some German cities. Um, and then in chatting with, uh, you know, podcast guest host and general friend in nature circles around Philadelphia, Christian Hunold, we realized that, that you're actually from sort of Raccoon Ground Zero. That is right, yeah. In Germany. Raccoons have reached my hometown back in, the, in Germany. And uh, my, uh, my parents and other people in, you know, in the town have gardens. What town is it? Uh, the town is called Detmold. Um, they have to uh, sort of get used to the presence of raccoons and learn things like bringing the uh, the bird feed inside at night and yeah. putting bungee cords on their trash cans and stuff like that they never had to do before. Yep, because uh, you know raccoons. They uh, I like I like raccoons. Sexy. We the pronunciation. They go raccoons. He's like raccoons. Um, we looked it up, and the story is a little more complicated than than just um, Hitler and company releasing raccoons. It was that, uh, and so I had some recording troubles when I was talking to. Um, I'm always having trouble pronouncing Doctor Homan. Hmm? Real quick, this is really reminded me. You're like, it's sort of more complex than that. After we're like just talking about like Nazi raccoons, you're like, sorry, it's actually more complex than that. It reminds me of that great scene in Half Baked when they're like. I have seen that a long time. They're talking about they find their, the Rottweiler dead, and they're like, "I bet like Samson's men came in here with like nunchucks and like ninjas, and they killed the dog." And like, someone's like, "You know, I bet I think it's more complex than that." They show like, more <laughs> complex than that. And he goes into this whole, and then like Jim Brewer goes into this whole story about like how the dog was raised by like this like Rottweiler fight promoter and like this whole conspiracy and like, but it's like kind of like that. It's like more well, complex than Nazi leadership wanting to improve the fall of Germany. No so more complex than that. This is more accidental, less less coordinated than that. Um, this is where a regional game official sort of wanted the wanted to release raccoons from a fur farm to give people you know sort of something to hunt and uh, sort of fur bearing species out in the woods so it was nothing sort of centrally decided about it but it did happen at the beginning of the nazi era and then after world war ii people started getting more reports about the raccoons sort of eating your fruit off your your fruit trees kind of thing and then starting in the 1950s, they opened up official hunting of raccoons as a game species. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where Dr. Hoban picks it up, sort of talking about sort of how that was provided early documentation of their extent and then their spread, because you could, you could document how many hunters killed them and mm-hmm. where. Um, so it gives you a good record of them. What the statistics tell us up to now is that the raccoon seems... Uh, to have problems in the 50s, 60s, 70s, up to the 80s, 
to get established in, in Europe. So the hunting bags were quite low, something around 100, several hundred, up to a thousand, not more, all over Germany and even all over Europe, because at that time the raccoon almost only occurred in Germany. So the, all the hunted raccoons in the, in, the, in the first 20 years, or first 30 years, um, almost all raccoons that got shot by somebody got shot around these release sites in the 30s. So there was a strong indication that the spread of the population seems to be hindered by something that we at that time didn't understand why the raccoon spread so slowly. Today we have a fairly good idea why they spread so slowly, but at that time nobody really understand what's going on. And then in the 80s, in the 90s, and especially in the last 20 years, the raccoon population has something like an explosion. Um, we, we record at the moment something around 100,000 raccoons hunted each year. And if you compare that with uh, several hundred raccoons just 40 years ago, that gives you an idea of the well-being of, of that new mammal in, in, uh, in Germany, especially in Germany. But at the moment, uh, also uh, many other countries in Europe have raccoons on a much lower level than in Germany. Germany is still the, uh, the country with the highest population in Europe, uh, but they start to go into France, Switzerland, Austria, Czech Republic, Poland. And what was it that hindered their expansion before and then changed to allow it? Yeah, that is a good question. And we think um, the females in raccoons, and that was a common, uh, a common knowledge in, in the States as well as our research here in, in Germany, that it uh, doesn't matter whether American raccoons or European raccoons, the females stay uh, close to the mother's home range uh, we call it philopatric behavior. And it's the male usually that spreads, that migrates. And in, a, in an area where raccoons were new, where they have to populate the area, to colonize the area, this behavior doesn't make sense because the males just walk away from the mother's home range into nowhere. They won't find any females. But that, the raccoons didn't know that. So they, they, they behave like they behave many hundred thousand years before. Um, they follow this, uh, this, this, um, spe this specific male behavior. They start migrating, maybe 10 kilometers, maybe 20 kilometers. Some raccoon males may have even migrated more than 100 kilometers, but it doesn't make sense because they didn't find any conspecifics to, to mate with. And, and this makes sense, because if you look on the hunting statistics, you find uh, more away from the, official, uh, from the um, former release sites, you mostly found young males, and that's it. And m maybe you, you, a hunter was um, killing a, a, a raccoon um, many, many kilometers away from the release sites in the 60s or in the 70s, he found it was a male. And then nothing happened for maybe another 10 years. And then again, a male was captured or killed. So it took some time, it took decades, um, till the females were following the males. And the moment the females reached an area, then the population can really start getting established. 
and that makes it so slow. So what happens when they've, in their expansion, I mean, I guess they're starting off released into forest. Um, what has happened in Germany when, the, I guess, sort of the, the females, you know, reach, um, or the next generation sort of reaches the edge of a city? Do they end up being urban animals like they, they are typically in North America? Yes, um, right. Um, when I did my PhD in the 90s, we didn't really know much about urban raccoons. Um, and I was really uh, very much fascinated when one of my radio colored males uh, were located uh, in the, on the edge of a small city. Um, I, was really, uh, I was really crazy about that because I, I, I was reading all these papers on, on urban raccoons in, in Ohio, Toronto, Cincinnati, Washington, and I start feeling that something similar maybe will, is going to happen now in Europe. So I followed this male. Um, he, he spent some, some weeks on the edge of the city, and on one night he was in the center of this small village. And I located the male in a garden, and I ringed on the door and asked the housekeeper uh, whether, he, whether he knew that a raccoon is in his garden. And he starts laughing at me and uh, asked me to follow him. And uh, we came to his sleeping room, and in his sleeping room there was a little switch on the wall, and he switched on the light, which was illuminating his garden. And in this garden I saw 20 raccoons sitting in the center of the garden. And one of these 20 was my radio-colored male. And in that moment, I realized that it was just we researchers that didn't um, recognize that the urbanization of the raccoon has already reached uh, a level like in the States. But this, he, he was absolutely familiar with these raccoons because he started feeding them since several years. So they start urbanizing much earlier than we knew. But at the moment, we have a, uh, we have a much better knowledge about that. So we can conclude that uh, in Germany especially in the central part of Germany, which is also very forested, um, almost all villages which, um, which uh, were close to forests located um, might have a raccoon population. So it's, it's, uh, maybe we reach levels like in the States. For example, in Kassel, which is the city with the probably highest raccoon population, urban raccoon population. In Kassel, we started... Um, research on population size and density, and we, we found out that it's pretty much the same like, like in the States. So something around 50 to, to 100 raccoons per square kilometer, which is pretty much the same densities that we found in Toronto or, or Washington so, or Chicago. How are they regarded? I mean, I guess there's the officially and, and sort of by the public, are they a pest species that is that you're trying to control or eradicate, or are they just sort of a part of the local fauna now? Like, do people think of them as pests or, or endearing? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. But the German attitude uh, on raccoons, I think, is not much different from that in America, that some people hate them, some people love them, and many people just don't really recognize that they are there. So I think there's a high variability in citizens how they regard raccoons. It, it could happen that you that you ask people in a city um, what they think about raccoons. One is telling you um, that they have raccoons every evening in the garden, and just the neighbor didn't even know that they have raccoons in Europe. So it could be very, very um, 
different from from one house to the other. Neat. Um, is there are there is there official government are there official government efforts to try to get rid of them or control them? Yes, uh, to control them uh, in terms of of um, conflict management. So in the very beginnings, the official authorities and in, in the in the affected cities thought that um, capturing and uh, just really um, to um, take them out of the of the city by by um, euthanizing the animals would be a solution. But then they really quickly start to realize that that is not really um, effective. Um, I think this pretty much the same happened in the States or in, in, in Canada. In Toronto, for example, they tried to eradicate the raccoon problem by just huge capturing programs. And then they start to realize uh, that it just didn't work. And, and I think this pretty much the same happened here in Germany, that, the, for example, the authorities in Kassel put much more emphasis on educating the public that, that raccoons in the city are natural, that they behave normally, that they are not sick, um, how to prevent them from getting into the house, um, what to do with, with uh, food for the pets, how to get them out of the chimney and things like that. But capturing to, to kill them is probably not a very good effective control measure because it just doesn't work. Yeah, so this is something uh, new to right to sort of Germans, where I mean, meso predators are pretty much um, limited to red fox, um, you know, and they're game species, and so, so they're usually hunted pretty intensely by the local hunters, and never really um, develop the kind of you know, population density that we sort of hear about in you know British cities or something. How about like badgers? Because they're they're they're. Sorry. Yeah. Well, badgers, but badgers are always sort of low in number. Like they're never um, a species of animal that is sort of taking over the way that sort of meso predators like raccoons. Can. I just know in I British mean, cities. Yeah, yeah but there's there's suburbs like, like for some reason badgers. And, I mean, I'm not aware of any areas in Germany where they've sort of multiplied in the way that they have in. In areas of Britain, and I think that's because hunting culture in Germany is probably a little bit more uniformly distributed yeah, it's than not in the UK. Like UK in the UK, there seems to be a real sort of urban-rural split. It's a class thing too. In well, it's a class thing as well. And in Germany, I think, I mean, talking about the Nazis, I mean, I think one of the consequences of the Nazi regime has been a sort of, um, I mean, one of the only. I mean, this is difficult to say, um, but one of the only socially progressive consequences of the Nazi regime is the destruction of the German class system, essentially, which basically did not survive World War II. So there's sort of relatively uniform hunting pressure on mm. game animals yeah, in in the country. And I think that... that so basically, the, the, the point I was... I guess the point I was trying to make is that... So, yeah, so I think sort of for the first time, a lot of people are having to learn how to sort of coexist with this sort of um, yeah. uh, inquisitive... You're very dexterous, sort of meso mammal that never yeah. existed there before, and they um and so I sort of tracked the concept to to Japan also, and we'll hear about that in a little bit. But uh, that there are also raccoons established in Japan. In Japan, there had been a 
fad of keeping raccoons as pets mm-hmm. after a certain like cartoon that involved a kid who had a pet raccoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, if you've ever, if you know about raccoons, they start off really cute, but a full-grown raccoon is actually kind of formidable. Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I have, I have friends who have uh, raccoons as pets. And, really? Yeah, and it's it's a. Uh, was that West Philly guy for a while? Wasn't it's it? a lot of work. Um, you you probably, I mean, it, it can be done, but you want a very young raccoon. You want to separate them from their mother as early as possible, and you want to make sure it's a sort of a human raised raccoon, as it were. And then the you know they're sort of, I mean they're sort of pretty inquisitive animals to begin with, and they're sort yeah. of pretty smart. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pet that you can you can never really force it to do anything you want. Um, so you have to sort of adjust to its likes and dislikes and preferences. But they're and, strong. Yeah, they're, they're very strong. Yeah. You, can't, you can't physically dominate it. Yeah. An angry raccoon is like... An angry raccoon is a, a force to be reckoned Have you seen yeah. that video go around of a... It's a raccoon and a possum interacting over like... With a guy yeah. talking... Yeah, like the guy doing the, the, like the narrating from the raccoon's perspective. Yeah, like, would you try some of this over here? Get some of that beverage in a cool container. Yeah, it's so good. Matt Alt um, is a American expat in Japan um, who does translation and some other stuff. He talks. Well, you'll hear him introduce himself, but he'd also written some articles about Tokyo wildlife in English language publications in Japan. So I found him that way. Um, he's just like a general naturalist guy who loves nature. We didn't include it in this one, but he talked about the stag beetles and rhinoceros beetles in Japan and how kids will use those in like little fighting contests. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, Tony and I, I think we were looking up and we found out they have vending machines. You can get anything in a vending machine in Japan, apparently, but included, you can get live um, rhinoceros beetles so that you and your friends can have rhinoceros beetle competitions. Handy. Um, but... He was talking about sort of what I think of as like the the urban mesofauna. So we've got like in Australia, we've got somebody later on who's going to talk about the native possums mm-hmm. without an O in the front. That's right. And they sort of fit into that niche. Omnivores that'll live in your attic. Yes. Um, you think besides deer, right? Besides. Yeah, but the things that are like that, yeah, that are things like, that are sort of interestingly sort of inside outside and sort yeah, of raise right. interesting questions about sort of place and belonging and so on and so forth. Spoken like a true social scientist. Correct. <laughs> Emma Powers has written a wonderful article about the uh, possums in uh, in Australia. Actually, that's sort of about that and how homeowners how ho- her so it's, it's sort of a study she interviewed maybe. If I remember it correctly, a couple of dozen homeowners in Australia and how they sort of negotiate coexistence with or reject coexistence with um, native possums. Yeah. Um, and in some people. And it's a lot like how people deal with or react to the presence of raccoons or Virginia opossums in North America, right? Yeah. So some people are totally happy to have them running around wild in their attic. Or sort of show up to eat with the cats, you know, in yeah. the backyard. You know, and other people can sort of call pest control and, yeah. out and have them removed. And, and know, some people will be like... It's on a sort of very sort of, you know, Trump-style border wall, if you want, between sort of inside <laughs> and outside. Support the raccoon. That's right. Yeah. And so, so Australians have a sort of, you know, mirror, I think, in that sense, you know, the whole range of sentiments about yeah. to what extent their presence inside the home 
is acceptable or not. And everything you're saying, you could just swap out possum for raccoon. Yes. Talking about the United States so. yeah, and yeah. Canada. Yeah, correct. Pretty interesting in Australia now, people seem to be having these relationships with kookaburras. The birds? Yeah. Hmm. Coming in, like, eating from their barbecue and like, they're feeding them sausages and they're yeah, like, yeah. hanging out in their patios and stuff. Right. Yeah. But, the, uh, but with raccoons, I mean, in Philadelphia, I feel like I get a mix of reactions where people are either pleasantly surprised and like, oh, how cute. You yes. know, it's a cute yeah. raccoon with her babies. Right. Um, and then you get the news articles or you get the, the, I feel like every, if you Google it and look it up, like in Philadelphia media, like every few years, there's a round of news reports about raccoons in someone's attic in South Philly or North Philly Dude. and some frantic lady who's like calling the cops. About that's the how you my door duty experience with raccoons. Tell her again. I remember. I, yeah. I, I was going to jury duty and this is when I was in grad school. So I just could not do it, you know? And then they just let you off, right? So there's a line you go in to talk to a clerk or whatever and plead your case for why you can't do jury duty. And the woman in front of me was like, I got raccoons in my roof and they are making noise and they are making a hole in the roof. I just, and the woman was like, okay, okay. And she let her out of jury duty for raccoons in a roof. <laughs> Which is- she was going off. She's like, there's raccoons. I was like, man, uh, I'm in grad school and my life's hell right now. <laughs> Yeah, and there's um. Did you turn it off? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm Matt Alt. Uh, I'm a uh, writer and translator based in Tokyo, and uh, together with my wife Hiroko, uh, we run a company that localizes uh, video games and manga and things like that into English and other languages. Well, I think if you're when you're talking about Tokyo, you have to ask yourself: Are you talking about Tokyo as in like kind of the inner city of Tokyo, or are you talking about Tokyo as the metropolitan area, which is obviously a lot bigger and it's kind of surrounding suburbs? If you're talking about Tokyo as in the the city of Tokyo, which is like within the 23 wards of Tokyo, as it's called, which as foreigners like to think of it, is kind of within the Yamanote Line train that circles the entire city. That kind of central area that's very built up and very urbanized so of course what you're going to be seeing a lot more things like rats <laughs> crows uh you know cockroaches uh that sort of thing you know seagulls because it is near the bay that sort of thing but that said there are some kind of unique uh, uh animals and critters to asia that you can occasionally find uh even in the big city and about I think this is about five years ago or so, there was a big uh, uh, to-do about a palm civet cat that had somehow worked his way downtown and had, was running around inside a subway station. Yeah, and, okay. Yeah, and, and these are palm civet cats, which are called hakubishin in Japanese, are really interesting kind of animal. They're, I, they're, they're called cats, but they actually look kind of like stretched-out raccoons. Um, to me, and they're very common in Japan, uh, and they occupy much of the same niche, uh, ecologically speaking, uh, that, that raccoons would in the West, um, kind of foraging for garbage in urban areas and things like that. But yeah, so you see things like that, and also, especially as you get more out toward the suburban areas, not so much downtown, but you'll actually see uh, things like monkeys. There are actually monkeys uh, uh, very near Tokyo, like certainly in the Hachioji area, which is out west. Uh, which you can see from time to time. And in certain areas of Japan, not in Tokyo, certainly, but in certain areas of Japan, there are actually big uh, pests in uh, suburban areas. The tanuki is a Japanese, uh, it's often translated as raccoon dog. And so tanuki are canids, um, uh, and they're, they very much physically, uh, at, at a quick glance, resemble raccoons, except for the fact they don't have those striped tails. 
and they are uh, kind of... They're one of the cutest things anyone's ever seen. I mean... Oh, yeah, they're great. They're great. No, we we actually, and we have tanuki living in our neighborhood. Um, We've actually come home late at night and find them, you know, hanging out on our steps or not even doing any damage or anything, just because, you know, our our garbage is in in our neighborhood. uh, The garbage is usually really pretty sealed away, so I'm not exactly sure what they're subsisting on out there. But uh, tanuki are also really interesting because they're this integral part of Japanese folklore. Uh, in Japanese folklore, tanuki occupy the space that in many uh, American Indian cultures, the raven does, you know, a kind of a trickster and a shapeshifter. And so you'll have all of these, there's this huge amount of stories in Japanese folklore about tanuki tricking people or disguising themselves as people and like to get into places and things like that. So there's this kind of, um, uh, Japan has a kind of love-hate relationship with them. I guess in sort of much the way Americans do with raccoons. It, just thinking of things they might subsist on, I mean, I'm guessing you guys have rats and mice. Absolutely. We have rats and mice, uh, certainly uh, fruits on trees and things like that. Okay. Um, there's a lot of fruit trees out there. I, I'm going to ask you about one more thing. When you mention Tanuki and you start Googling them. Oh, um, yes. One of the first things you come up with, better to have someone who knows it better than I talk about it. Okay. Uh, the mythology around their scrotums. Yes. Tanuki are famed in Japanese folklore for having these giant and and I guess you could say transformable uh, scrotums, where uh, in folklore you will see tanuki taking their scrotums and like wrapping themselves up in them to transform into other forms, or uh, drawing them over their heads to to kind of shelter themselves from the rain. And it's actually in folklore there's an actual physical size given to them that it can extend the that the tanuki scrotum can extend some eight tatami mats in size, and a tatami mat is a pretty that's a pretty large uh, it's about a, a meter by a half meter rectangle. So you can imagine eight of those together. That's a pretty big uh, surface area. Now, this is, this is everybody knows this. This, this is a, a quote-unquote fact that everybody knows about Tanuki in Japan. But um, in reality, and so when I first saw a Tanuki, the first thing I did was try to maneuver around behind and, like, do they really have big testicles? <laughs> they don't. Um, they don't at all. And uh, Hiroko and I, my wife, we actually write quite a bit about Japanese folklore. We co-authored a book called Yokai Attack, the Japanese Monster Survival Guide. And uh, it's full of monsters from Japanese folklore. Not Godzilla and things like that, but actual folkloric monsters, of which the tanuki we put in there is one. And when we researched it, we realized that the, the, the association between balls and testicles and tanuki came about because gold workers in times of old, to make gold leaf, would actually use tanuki pelts to pound it out. You can't just hammer on a, a ingot of gold to make gold leaf. You need something soft to be pounding on to make it super thin, right? Yep. Now, in Japan, the slang word for testicles, of course, there's scientific words and things like that, but medical words, but the slang word that everybody uses is kintama, which means golden balls. So, the association between gold in the sense of these gold leaf makers using tanuki pelts to hammer out the gold and balls and tanuki all became kind of mixed together in people's minds. And starting in like the 1800s, they became kind of a symbol of prosperity, uh, which is why you see little tanuki statues out front of a lot of Japanese restaurants and hotels and things like that. Because so of the association with gold, I got it. Okay. Association with gold and the and the association with their and the and the the ball sacks and all this sort of thing. So you will see large scrotumed tanuki statues 
very common. If you look up Tanuki statue, I'm sure you'll find it. They're standing oh, right Oh, believe me, I have. Yes. yes. And, and, it, and I, and to be also clear, this is not, I mean, in, in the States, you hear this kind of thing and you think, oh my god, that's like sexually obscene, but this is not, this is more just comical in Japan. Yes. It's, I think it's, I think it's kind of key to say that until the, in, until Westerners kind of started sailing into Japanese harbors, uh, Japanese were, were very comfortable with, with nudity. So we're just looking quickly at some some, tar, some tanuki, some historic Japanese tanuki raccoon dog cartoons um, showing tanuki using their enormous scrotums for shelter, mm-hmm. um, like a giant wrinkly tent with some hair on it, and uh, other historic. I've cartoons. seen them using it as like parachute to like. We have parachutes here. I think they're using them to catch fish in a river. So these are what. What what era are these? I think these are like 1800s, okay. 1840 well, illustrations. The parachute was in a fairly recent cartoon, but yes. Oh. The Japan, though, part, I was like, okay, there's raccoons in Germany, sorry, in Japan, um, but in Japanese cities, they have what we would call raccoon dogs. Um, and so I just was like, okay, we'll have to follow that up. And so that's how I ended up talking to, to Matt. Um, and Matt also mentioned something called a palm sit. The palm civets were introduced to Japan in the 1800s. I'm not sure why, um, but another sort of the kind of thing that'll live in your attic. Also, uh, on the raccoon beat, um, it's hard to research urban raccoons without coming across Susan McDonald's work, um, looking at, again, like you try to avoid loaded words like intelligence, but... Well, but, Franz Saval calls it uh, evolutionary cognition to avoid the intelligence and consciousness conundrum. So he sort of says, well, animals have to be able to solve problems they encounter in daily life. Yeah. And what those problems are obviously sort of differs. You know, a raccoon is sort of a different set of problems from a chimp or a human. Yeah. Um, but it all involves some form of cognition, right? Yeah. Some ability to sort of understand perhaps causation or... Um, Puzzle solving. Some tool use in uh, more and more species. Sure, I'm Dr. Suzanne McDonald. I'm a professor at York University here in Toronto. I am a professor of psychology and biology, so I study animal behavior. Great. Um, And so how did you come to do research on uh, urban raccoon intelligence? Well, raccoons have actually been studied by psychologists for over a hundred years, but they they actually were studied at the beginning of the 1900s and then not again <laughs> because they're really difficult to work with. Um, I started looking at them, uh, frankly, because we were at, I was asked to be on a um, TV show for Nature talking about raccoons because I study m- mammals and I'm a psychologist, and um, I realized we don't really know that much about raccoons in the city and even though they live in our backyards and that seems crazy so about five years ago I started um, in trying to rectify that so the first study we did which was actually for the nature show was to put um, GPS collars on some raccoons and track them in the city to see where they went and to see how big their home ranges were because we didn't really know um, so that was a really interesting study. We had every 20 minutes we would f- have a little ping from the caller so we would know in very fine detail where these animals spent their time for about a month. And it was amazing. And after that, I got 
that was done with one of my grad students. And after that, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do this crazy study on my own. And uh, I got funding from National Geographic, which was amazing, and went out and spent 120 nights watching raccoons in forests and also in downtown Toronto. And, yep, my friends think I'm insane. I don't. Um, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, they, you know, maybe they think me that I'm insane for other reasons, but you know, I would go to parties downtown and go, "Hey, do you mind if I just go out in your backyard while the party's going on and set up an experiment and put some cameras in?" And they're like, "Yeah, okay." So after a while, they got used to it. That's that's all I can say. It was fun. So, um, so I guess how do you well how do you design what kind of experimental design do you use to test relative intelligence? Well, it's a really hard question because we don't even know what intelligence is, really. I mean, how do you define it? Um, my hypothesis is and was, it still is, that um, the urban environment is shaping raccoons so that the urban raccoons are different in some way that denotes intelligence compared to their country cousins who don't have the same selection pressure on them to be smart and to figure out how to get into garbage cans and do all those things that urban raccoons have to do. So my study was to compare, I wanted to compare rural animals and urban animals on a couple of problem solving tasks just to see if there were any differences. So that's what I did. Um, I made up two tasks that were easy enough. I, I had to have, <laughs> I had to have something portable that I could take all over the Toronto area, and then also all over southern Ontario, um, and that I could clean in between. And, you know, there's all these requirements for making these stupid tasks. So I ended up, I had tried to build all these extraordinary things. I ended up with a garbage can with a bungee cord over it, over the top, over the lid. And then I made up this crazy novel hanging thing out of a garbage can hanging upside down so that nobody had ever seen anything like that. No raccoon had seen anything like that. And um, the tasks were designed, or at least I designed them, to be one was easier than the other. So the food was easier to get at. You only had to make one little brain. You had to think about one thing. You had to you had to do one thing to get the food from one of them, and you had to make two leaps of of intelligence to get the food from the other task. And so I put them both out. For um, raccoons in the city, and then I put them out all over southern Ontario for rural raccoons and found that the urban raccoons were wildly different than their country cousins were. How are they wildly different? Well, I will tell you. So on the easy task, the, the one-stage task, all the raccoons in the city and the country were the same. So they all figured it out, and they all did it similar things. And there was no problem with that task at all, even though it was a, a really weird task. It hung and it swung in a weird way. And even the, the country raccoons were a little spooked by it, but they all figured it out and they and they all had fun with it. Actually, they were all flinging it all over the place. Uh, I'm not there. Obviously, I had motion ca uh, cap camera traps up so that I wasn't there. There was no there were no people there when these tasks were done. I just watched the video afterwards and laughed. Um, and then the second task, which was the garbage can with the bungee cord. It's actually a two-step task because um, when you put food in the bottom of a garbage can, what an animal does is smell around the bottom of the garbage can because that's where the food is. But a raccoon in the city does more than that. So the 
the rural raccoons actually go all the way around the outside of the can over and over and over again, smelling the food, and then they kind of have a sort of half-hearted attempt to open the lid, and then they walk away. But the urban ones uh, smell the food, immediately go to the top of the garbage can and start trying to figure out how to get into it. The reason I chose the garbage can with the bungee cord is because rural animals actually experience that as well. Um, I use, I wasn't out in the middle of like forests. I was in areas that had people, but that have no um, regular garbage collection. So that was my definition of rural. So that there's no predictable a routinized um, garbage that's out for them so that they don't rely on human food. But everybody in the country actually puts their garbage in a garbage can and puts the bungee cord on the top. So it turns out the reason they do that is because rural animals can't figure that out. Um, not all the urban animals actually did. About 80% of the urban animals did, but zero of the um, rural animals figured out that task. Oh, I did it for two summers, and so last year and the year before. Just out of curiosity, you mentioned before that raccoons are hard to work with. Why are they hard to work with? Oh, well, you know, they have toxic poop and they're not, they do carry rabies and they're not, they're a wildlife species. They're protected. So you're not going to keep them in captivity. Um, so they're, and they bite and, you know, they're raccoons. So they're large and they're, they're not easy to pick them up. <laughs> they're, they're not an animal that you want to mess around with. Uh, yeah, if you've ever, when we had to put um, radio call, when we had to put the collars on to track them, we had to get them in little squeeze cages so the veterinarian could anesthetize them so we could get the collar on and then wake them up again. And my God, they're little balls of fury when you do that. So you don't really want to get too close to a raccoon. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I've seen some, I've seen some bruisers around here. Yeah, um, they they look bigger than they are because a lot of it is is fur, but they are still, some of the males can be very big, and all of them have very good teeth, so you don't want to get near that. Um, when you were talking about selective pressure, mm -hmm. um, so do you think these are, uh, this is a question of evolved behavioral differences, or just the environment developing, is this a question of sort of nature or nurture? Well, that's the question, so yeah. the only way to answer that definitively is now my next my follow-up study is going to be to look at uh, infant raccoons. So um, raccoons stay with their mom for the first couple months and they don't forage that she feeds them. They don't forage. Um, and they're often in the city and in, and in rural areas as well. Um, that's when they're removed from environments. So they go to these wildlife centers for rehab and they keep the uh, young ones there until they're old enough. So I can, I actually can get access to some city babies and some country babies. And that's the way to look at it because then you'll know whether it's genetic or whether it's nurture because none of them have had any experiences foraging at that point. I, I did, the reason I'm, I want to do that is because I did have some infants and young ones attempt my tasks and the difference between the urban and the rural animals was there in the young ones as well. So it suggests to me that, yeah, this isn't just an experiential thing. This this is something we're selecting for. And I, I don't know if it's actually intelligence, but certainly the behaviors that I recorded um, are different. So exploratory behavior is different. Um, the animals in the rural areas are neophobic, so they're afraid, more afraid of new things, whereas the ones in the urban environment are neophilic. They approach new things right away. 
Um, so that, that, those kinds of behaviors can be selected for. So they have been in other species as well. And that is documented in other animals, just not large mammals like raccoons. Um, so those, that kind of boldness, you know, um, that is, uh, is a genetically determined trait. And it would make sense that that's what the urban environment is selecting for. So those animals that exhibit those traits will be more likely to survive and to get food and to, have offspring, um, and then their genes will carry on, and those that don't exhibit those traits will not, and so they won't, their genes won't be in the gene pool anymore. Well, you know, a lot of times I'm sitting out there in the country getting eaten by mosquitoes thinking, I have made a very bad career choice at some point. Nobody forced me to do this, and yet here I am. So, yeah, not exactly the most, um, glamorous of studies, but I'm glad now that I have about 800 hours of video, so I have a lot of video, um, and it was it was really fun. I, I was just amazed by the results to see how different these animals were. It was like they were two different species. I mean, if I didn't, if I didn't look at them, if I just recorded their behavior, I would think they were two different kinds of animals. They behave completely differently. Do you have raccoons in your own yard? Oh yes, I have raccoons in my own yard. Yes, I test all my all my my potential tasks are all tested on my raccoons. So yep, they're very very fat and very very bold raccoons in my backyard. And just one other little point of curiosity: what do you bait the trap? What do you bait them with? Oh, they love cat food a lot, so that's the easiest thing. So okay. just a can of cat food. But if I really want to be nice, so for my raccoons in my yard, I use roast chicken. Oh, yes, they love that. They love Kentucky Fried Chicken more than life itself, but I find it disgusting, so I don't buy it. Well, you know, I tell you, the, the urban ones have absolutely no fear, and so I can test anything on the ones in my backyard. In fact, they wait for me to put it out, and then as soon as I put something out there, there, and they're trying to explore it and figure it out, and they have buckets on their head, and they have it. It's, it's hilarious, but, you know, they, they are so smart and so, you know, just engaged with stuff and they have the, they can do that because they're not living in the country where they have to range over 10 kilometers to find food. I mean, they live in three square blocks their entire lives. So they, they have time on their hands. I think that explains why they, they use, they try a lot of these new things. They got, you know, they got nothing else to do. Seems like every day you open the paper, you find another story about sort of Another magpie. Amazing. Yeah, or the, you know, some of the, um, a couple of, uh, I think the the most, sort of the one that stands out from the past year that I read about is a couple of raptors in Australia that intentionally start fires. They spread fires. Yeah, it's a kite species and a a hawk. I mean, they're two distinct raptors, and when they see brush fires, they, they, they know to pick up sort of burning twigs, embers, and sort of spread the fire to um, flush out more insects. So stuff like that, right? So, yeah. which is clearly has to has to involve, right? You, I mean, you can imagine that as a sort of instinct or innate behavior, but it's just sort of simpler to conclude that clearly there's some... They figured it out. They somehow. figured it out, right? There's yeah. a connection between stuff is burning and the voles and mice and whatever start they know running for the hills. That equals food. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, more of it, yeah. so I think evolutionary cognition as a, as a term, I think kind of makes sense because it sort of is sort of neutral. Like it avoids that, that loaded idea. And, and 
it sort of avoids the urge to compare, you know, animal cognition to human cognition and how they're different and how they're similar, which sure. always ends up in this sort of, you know, endless sort of knot and probably isn't particularly helpful to really understand yeah. a particularly species cognition. So I like that. So tell us about your, speaking of urban birds and their challenges, you got a paper? Got yeah, a- I have a paper coming out about um, urban hawks and... Not really so much about the hawks themselves as their sort of relationship with the people that sort of observe them. Yeah. So it's sort of a multi-species ethnography, um, which is another one of those not very handy terms to describe an emerging <laughs> academic field. Um, but but what people are I trying like to, it though. But what people are trying to do is sort of a, I think a very sort of serious thing, right? They're sort of asking how how does our view of the environment that surrounds us changes. Now, how does that view change if we take into account the fact that there are other species that sort of inhabit it, right? And that sort of have some sort of relationship um, with us and we have some sort of relationship with them. Um, I mean, not in a sort of, you know, romantic or nostalgic or in that sort of sense, but, you know, there, there are relationships. I mean, yeah. raccoons have learned how to open trash cans. Um, and the urban hawks that I'm writing about um, you know, the ones that make it to adulthood anyway, have to figure out to avoid, you know, how to avoid cars, how to avoid buildings, how to sort of avoid elements of their environment that, you know, they haven't necessarily evolved to learn to avoid in the woods, right? Yeah. Where it's possible to fly into a tree maybe, but, you know, you fall out of the nest and you end up, you know, you land on some sort of more or less soft ground in the forest. Um, you know, if you fall out of the nest in Central City, Philadelphia, you land from like on, eight stories up. Yeah, you land yeah. in a in a, on a hard sidewalk, right? Which is yeah. sort of likely to injure you. So there, there. That's forgiving. So there's sort of certain risks to the urban environment that they, especially when they're young, um, that they're not particularly well equipped to handle, like hard surfaces or reflective glass. Yeah. Um, but once you start looking, moving right, vehicles. Yeah, right, and moving vehicles. But once you start looking. There are, um, you know, red-tailed hawks and Cooper's hawks and so on just about anywhere in the city. It's true. So clearly, um, the sort of cost-benefit calculus sort of works out for them, right? The sort of supply of food at all times of the year, you know, rats, pigeons. But is it still a live question whether it's a sink? Like, are are young hawks moving into the city? See, that we don't know. Setting up a nest and then not succeeding very well. No, they're succeeding extremely well. The research okay. there is actually research that suggests that um, this is a study done in uh, Minneapolis. Um, it's obviously a smaller city than Philadelphia, but um, yeah, I mean, it does have sort of have an urban core. They have buildings, and the nests. Um, they did a nice comparative study where they found that the nests in the urban core were, on average, more productive than nests in. The suburban or rural areas. Didn't Rob find that with with the Bardells in Charlotte that they're actually more successful? Yeah, in the yeah. Suburban and, then, and it's 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 because food is never a constraint. Like it's relatively independent of weather. It's we got pigeons. it's relatively independent of the seasons. <laughs> we got yeah, p- pigeons, rats. I mean, there's some seasonal foods that sort of, but they almost seem like supplements, like the goslings or something in May. Yeah, like if they didn't exist, it wouldn't matter. I'm gonna yeah. see them on goslings. That's so awesome. Sorry? I don't see them hunt goslings. Yeah, no, it is pretty awesome. Yeah, you got to see them? Take it's them? like going to the bank. It's like going to a... Have you seen it yourself? Yeah. 
Yeah, they just basically go. So you don't just study the hawk watchers; you spend quality time watching the hawks. Yes, for pic- photographs. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so I, yeah. So you had sort of. Um, you some of your pictures of hawks in Philadelphia are kind of famous among nature people. Yeah, you get to sort of you get to know the hawks, and the hawks get to know you. Um, Good. When I write my probably my next Parks and Rec article, it's going to be about hawks. And I hit you up for some photos. Yeah. No. Oh. You got to get the one of the hawk Payable. carrying the dead squirrel. Which building is that? Is it there? The Franklin Institute. Institute. Franklin Institute. Yeah. Across the Franklin Institute. It has a nest, yeah. Payable in drinks. Or sure. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. We have this fine... Uh, he takes bourbon. Fine bourbon. <laughs> so the um, multi-species ethnography. Yeah. It's, it's sort of an attempt to, I think, to sort of decenter the human part of it, to sort of... I mean, all of it, I think, is to some extent a response to an article by Jennifer Walsh, um, I think published in around 2000, where she sort of said, look, we're, we've built these cities, and we've built them for people, and we've had sort of, you know, the sanitary city and, you know, infrastructure, urban infrastructure that's basically sort of designed to separate us from the rest of nature, you know, whether you think about sewers or roads or buildings, right? And this sort of a, a Fences, very, yeah. Yeah, a very strong sort of inside-outside, you know, inside we're sort of safe and outside is the potentially sort of, you know, it's our waste and bacteria and rats. And, and the cold. And the cold. Yeah. Yeah. So, so all, all, you know, sort of what sort of human habitation is sort of about. Yet, in the late 20th century, I think it became, and I think this is sort of a, a, a big kind of historical transformation where in in the sort of industrial cities you know if you sort of the, the, the high industrial age of the 1950s and 1960s th- there were in many ways not a lot of animals in in western cities do we know that or no one was like well i think we 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 know it um and it's and it's not entirely clear whether it's a result of just the sort of high levels of pollution and industrial activity or whether it's a sort of delayed effect of the, just the sheer deforestation of the 19th century, which in many ways sort of removed the connection between sort of wildlife habitat and yeah, this came urban from areas. Discussions that, like, right, right, which, that you have sort of when you have wooded streets basically yeah. connecting with... Right, and so what happens in the yeah. second half of the 20th century, at least in eastern North America... Uh, which is the case I sort of know best, is the forest comes back, right? Right. Because of a... I mean, because lots of reasons. One is the sort of the disappearance of agriculture for yeah. the most part from the American Northeast. So. I literally was writing about this. Yeah. Like, earlier today, because I was writing an article about owls for Parks and Rec. I was talking about barn owls. Right. And saying that they're declining, and one of the reasons was because... It's in a way a good thing because the forests have re- they're open country bird. That's right, yeah. So the forests have returned and yes. then the farms have got replaced yeah. by space. That's right. But but because of the return of the forest, um a lot of sort of more woodland species can now kind of move back. Yeah. It's not quite the right term because it's never sort of been there before. Um, but they can move into cities. Right? Yeah. Well it's the grey squirrel story basically. Yeah. It's yeah. the grey squirrel, it's the fox story, it's the coyote story. In New England, the fishers. Fishers and maybe soon the black bear story. Who knows? Um, well, I mean, if I mean, if you're gonna not be snooty about the definition of a city, and you know, Billy and I always joke about we're snooty be, because Philly is so unbelievable. We yeah. have this definition of the, there's Philly proper and then there's uh, suburbs, but our suburbs are like other cities. Yes, city That's and 
black bears live in suburban New Jersey. They're part of the yeah. ecosystem of suburban New Jersey. Yeah. And, yeah. You know? I was thinking about the Fishers. Um, it just in more than one city, or more, more than one urban area, including urban areas in Germany, I think. No, and certainly Switzerland. I think Germany would have the pine martens yes. that attack people's cars. Yes, there are... Um, there are uh, yeah, there's, there's two kinds of martin in Europe, uh, the stone martin and the European pine I'm martin. I'm sorry, stone martin, yeah. And it's the stone martin, I think, that is, uh, that tends to be a little bit stoned. more... Stoned. <laughs> what's, what's the... It's not stoned. What's the, the, what's the term? The uh, um, synanthropic? Yeah. So they, so they, they tend to sort of like... Um, you got you to get a chance to put the hook in there. That's right. Synanthropic organism... They like they like they like <laughs> dwellings and they like um, you know they like sort of um, human built structures and uh, and they're attracted to um, the sort of actually I see this in my in my cats um, they're sort of attracted to the aromatic hydrocarbons mm-hmm. I guess in rubber and it's irresistible and so apparently what they do is they the and males they in breeding season will mark yeah. Will pee on the insides of cars, basically, in, in the, the well, hoses and stuff. And they chew through the, the rubber hoses. But apparently the, what gets them to chew through it is when you move the car from one male's territory uh, to another. Okay. And so new male smells old male. And go, go bonkers. And then goes bonkers okay. um, on, the in, well, on all the scented territory yes. inside this car. Uh, and they end up ripping up the insides of... Yep. Of, uh, there's this video, we'll try to find it. I think it was... Audi engineers like releasing Stone Martins inside cars and labs with cameras on them to try to figure out how they like work what they what they car. can damage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I tell you about um, at Heinz when I was at John Heinz National Wildlife Refuge as the intern. There was a, a another seasonal guy from a different program um, who was like a seasonal biological intern, and they put up temporary housing, and he. Um, in the Corbin Suites, and he got his uh, or he, he he was renting it, but he had a short term lease, and he his stick shift Dodge Dakota got stolen because you know you can roll it and start it with stick shift, so he stole Dakota, and he got um, with insurance money he got a brand well, not brand new but a real nice shiny black Super Forester, and when he would park it at Heinz, the turkeys, the male turkeys would see their reflection. In his in the in the in the in the shiny black forester and attack it, and they would just scratch it to hell because they got those with the halex. Hi- Couldn't catch a break, you know. Yeah, <laughs> just attack his suit. He went he went away for a training or something. He comes back and his super scratched to hell. The turkeys attacking their own reflection in it. It's crazy. Raccoons. Any good raccoon sightings? To mention? Um, well, I mean, one of the last. Well, let me just put it this way. I, I work in a. In a large... Raccoon-rich place. <laughs> except I rarely see raccoons. Oh, yeah. You know? Um, they're so secretive? Or are you so... I see their sign. Dance? I see their footprints all over our windows yeah. and our suet feeders and stuff. But uh, and in fact, I'm trying to remember... Have I seen one in even in my, my own park? Um, the last one I know for sure was FDR, which is... And it was... In, which is like a manicured park in South Philly. You know? And I see them in West Philly. I see raccoons more often... In um, the residential areas, even the really, even for Philadelphia standards, the most residential, densely yeah. residential like uh, areas in Philadelphia, than I do in my massive 
wild park. Yeah, well, that's where the food is, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So my parents in Germany um, recently realized that their suet was disappearing every night. They have these sort of hollowed out, you know, coconuts or something, and, uh, you know, filled with suet and tied to a bush, like coconut shells. Yeah, yeah. I just hadn't thought of those first. But, right. um, and they kept disappearing. And so they were starting to get a little annoyed and got themselves a little trail cam and set up the trail cam overnight. And sure. I love that your parents get trail just right Yeah, there. let's get a trail cam. Yep. Uh, you know, Amazon. You can see how you, yes. but you can see how you were raised. You know yes. that. Yeah, that's right. It yeah. makes perfect sense. Yeah. And <laughs> no so they, they set up the uh, the trail cam, and sure enough, two uh, juvenile coons hmm. climbing into the little willow bush, and uh, um, I guess they had uh, tied down the suet a little bit more um, the day before, and so the coons weren't able to make off with it this time. But uh, yeah, photographic proof that uh, the raccoons were helping themselves to the free food. And, uh, Do they have rabid raccoon problems? Well, there's rabies, um, but it's pretty rare um, in Germany for, you know, this, this sort of, you know, historically some sort of widespread sort of rabies treatment of wildlife. Okay. Um, but as far as I know, rabid raccoons are not yet. They're a thing well, here. For I, sure. They are, yeah. In my neighborhood, we had it. We had it about ten years ago. We had a rabbit raccoon. And for context, your neighborhood looks like what? Like it's a Rojas neighborhood. It's pretty right. urban, concrete everywhere. Yeah. It's uh, generous to say that you have a garden. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although collectively, right, the sort of the middle of the block is like the a middle of the space. block is yeah. sort of a, an area that is you know like a half a soccer field or something like that. Yeah, that's a fair point. And it's relatively close to Fairmont Park, and there's a railway corridor nearby. So there are sort of areas where, um, you know, it's sort of a a sufficiently rich sort of mix of habitats for all kinds of wildlife. I love it. I heard that the railroads are really, really difficult to work with. Um. But I'd love the approach and be like, can I put up trail cams? Because I would love to see what uses. Well, you could just do it. I mean, it's not like they would. Yeah. This is a question of getting stolen. Yeah. Yeah. If you do it, sort of. If you camouflage it really. If well. you do it far enough from a far enough away from a sort of a crossroads, you sit there for weeks without anybody. I mean, I hurt rail, but I mean, it's. I guess I don't. I don't know how much I hike along them, but I certainly look at like the to find snakes in, and stuff in my. It was once, work, like once after nine eleven, like maybe a couple of years after that, we hiked down sort of a quarter mile of railroad track, and a couple of railroad guys actually came out and sort of talked to us. Yeah. But that's happened once, you know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if that would be a regular thing. I wonder if the, with the, where the I mean they have cameras, I'm sure. But I wonder when the where the rail line crosses was the Higgin Park. If I can get up there and yeah. be like I'm in the park, the park, yeah. Sure. What if, what but that would be that's also they're not going to work but you have a sort of a city job right so yeah. bring your binoculars and just this is what we do what Herpers or at least I'll do is I'll wear my nerdiest like reptile amphibian shirt and I'll have like my nature conservancy hat right. and I'll like just to be like look I am not smuggling cocaine I am or trying to blow up a train right right I've yeah. I'm, I'm here to with me, it's the camera that usually gives it away. Right, like, your camera is not like a terrorist. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've got like um, here's all my here's my pictures of snakes right here. I took them today. Sometimes though, yeah. camera is the thing they're worried about though. Because they're worried you're like sticking it. Well, maybe. But 
there's an interesting thing in the paper about, um, and this to me like says something about how we think about raccoons, is that Daryl Clark, who's head of city council, apparently introduced and had passed, um, got passed a bill uh, that allows trapping of raccoons that to then be released outside of Philadelphia. Because people don't like to think about like having to kill them. Right. Um, and it turns out that's illegal by state law, so yes. it's, it, won't, it doesn't matter that it's a law in Philadelphia, you still can't do it. For me, that's an interesting... It's the assumption that you can... That it's something that doesn't belong here, you should release it out where it belongs. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah. So sort of, because the, the density of raccoons is incredible, right? Well, they'll just like slip... No, they'll just slip right in. Well, plus, I mean, the, the baseline density of raccoons in Philadelphia is probably like 100 animals per square mile. Much higher more. than like rural areas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But also that the raccoon that you're catching in Philadelphia doesn't belong anywhere else. It no. grew up That's right, yeah. neck probably a house over or a block over right. from your house where you found it in your attic. Um, the only thing really to do is to get it out of your attic, seal up your attic, and that's the best anyone can do. Right. Um, yeah, killing them doesn't work. Or, the or bus moving them doesn't. That I wait on. Um, so if I do a night program, often I'll catch the nine instead of the twenty-seven, and at the nine stop, there's a trash can, and the the bus won't stop. Won't the trash can is at, you know next to the bus shelter, and and the the bus pulls up. Not next, like not the bus shelter, like 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 a bus like away from it because the trash can has raccoons always raiding it, and they don't want to. People are scared of the raccoons; they don't want to wait with the bus shelter. Oh, that's funny. Oh. And I'm like, eh, not a problem, huh? It is interesting that that these animals are sort of everywhere, um, and yet people are. Kind of afraid of them. Right? I, I yeah, it's true. I, I mean, it's the rabies. The rabies part I sort of get. Right? Yeah, but I the mean, thing having, is, cats. Feral cats seen, are a huge rabies vector. Having too. seen a rabbit raccoon, it's no fun, right? I mean, it's clearly yeah. it is a legitimately dicey situation where, yeah. where you can get hurt. So I, that makes sense to me. I but love them though. I would. But then the difference between a rabbit raccoon and a raccoon that evidently is not rabbit is like night and day, right? Just sort of it slips away from you and. It's, it, it, yeah, it, I mean, I've seen urban ones that are that don't seem like they're in a particular hurry to get away from you. No, but they but they just are still getting away from you. Yeah, yeah. for the most part. I, I think yeah. they're wonderful. I think they're just delightful. Yeah, yeah, I think they're some of the coolest looking animals on the planet. They are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, and they live right here in our cities, and they're adorable. They're interesting. They're great behavior. In my neighborhood in in Fairmount, its reactions are. Very mixed, right? I mean, at least as, as far as I can sort of tell from sort of online, you know, neighborhood message board discussions. Like some people are clearly sort of enamored by them and yeah. they love the fact that they hang out in their backyard and they've known these raccoons forever and they have sort of some sense of what their family structure is like. Um, and then other people are sort of petrified, right? You know, they, yeah. they uh, are they going to sort of eat my cat or, or um, you know, or I... I went to my backyard and the raccoon sort of wouldn't leave. And, you know, there's sort of a, a standoff. Just <laughs> will back up from you a little bit. Right, yeah, so, like, so it's a sort of... I'm going to watch you. That's right. And, it's, <laughs> and, and people don't really know how to sort of respond or how to read the sort of body language. Or, you know, just today I had a conversation with people who somebody had seen... A, so the, the, the fox population seems to sort of be expanding in my neighborhood. And oh, yeah. seeing foxes very frequently. 
like, well, are they dangerous? Do they? Do I call animal control? And, and well, we got to call someone. Um, and then you sort of have to say, well, no, they're sort of native animals, and they're they do really well in cities. And unless you're a kitten or a rat, you know, <laughs> you're probably going to be okay. Yeah. Yes, um, someone call. You know, we get calls as you can imagine and work for the park. Oh right, yeah. You know, so people call, um, and I'm kind of getting a reputation as like the wildlife guy. So people calling for, specifically for me. Nice. And I'm just like. Guys, like it's funny. This guy's actually in Upper Darby, but I guess Upper Darby's <laughs> wildlife people. Yeah. But he's next to Goskey Park, right? So yeah. I'm like, there's a fox on my on the lawn chair and, uh, <laughs> on my porch. I'm like sleeping. <laughs> I'm like, it's, it's why is he there? Like, because it's probably comfortable. Yeah. Um, and you can always look at it. And we'll link to it. Like Christian's fabulous Flickr feed. Of I always keep going back to the Hawks, but there's a lot of fun stuff in there. Yeah, so if you like the podcast, please rate us on your podcasting platform of choice. Feel free to drop us a note with feedback, suggestions, etc. at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Tweet at us at urbanwildlifecast. Uh, hit us up on Facebook. If you've got any ideas, let us know. We love it when you record stuff and send it to us to put on the air. Or not the air, put on the web. Uh, Christian, now Urban Hawk Groups, what's next for you? Uh, well, probably uh, uh, turning the Urban Hawk stuff into a book, I think. 